Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria.com. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long form pieces, deep dives, daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vaults, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will forever be print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Fangoria.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and welcome to Nightmare University. When I teach any class... I always try to save the last two lectures to let the students do a little bit of deciding on their own as to what we might be learning about. And I do this in my intro to film classes all the way up to my genre classes like musicals and horror. And I absolutely love doing this in the horror class because um, I always figure that the students, you know, they're paying for this class, so they should have some type of say in it. And it's always exciting to see by the end of the semester, by the time that they have kind of learned the whole history of horror, of what topics they're still fascinated to learn more about, what they choose on those days. And I'll usually um, let them generate a list of about 10 different topics that I've mentioned throughout the semester that they've been fascinated with, but we didn't get to cover. And then they'll get to vote on what they learn on the past, the last two days of class. And I love this because a lot of times it forces me to kind of push myself beyond the topics and tropes that I discuss all the time. I always do a class on um, technology horror, and I will always do a class on giallo films or aquatic horrors. But when students request Brazilian horrors, suddenly I have to go research um, a lot about Brazilian horror past Coffin Joe, which was kind of where my knowledge um, stopped prior to doing the lecture on it. This topic is the one that my students selected for this semester in the horror class that I'm teaching. And admittedly, when they selected it, I kind of rolled my eyes and was like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to have to like prep a two-hour long lecture on this and find footage to show. Because admittedly, I did not think that I liked this topic, this particular subgenre of films very much. And that's found footage. But what I discovered after diving in super deep into these films is that I fucking love found footage films. And we're going to talk about why that is and why I think a lot of us, when we're first approached with found footage films, we kind of buck them. I know a lot of people who are just like, yeah, I'm not into found footage films. But I think that with a lot of us, if they actually sit down and look at some of them, you go, okay, maybe I am. There are a couple that really stand out and a couple that make me really kind of give this subgenre of films, this aesthetical style of filming, a second glance and realize that there really is some artistic value. Now, admittedly, I had such a strong dislike for found footage films when we kind of had the glut of them post paranormal activity that I actually made a short film making fun of them. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Found. Um, and it was kind of my spoofy mockumentary about how much I disliked the found footage trends that were going on at the time. So before we dive into kind of how my brain righted itself around to enjoy found footage films, let's start by talking about what a found footage film is. 
So um, a couple of kind of pinpoints that I will say most found footage films have, and this is not all of them because every single time I would come up with one rule that I would be like, okay, well, this is a rule of found footage films. I would find at least two that didn't have it, but these are kind of general ones. So the first one is that it's meant to look homemade or kind of amateur. Now, this is obviously blown out of the water as soon as you have some that look like they're filmed by professional camera crews, like the bay is supposed to look like it was largely shot by some type of professional camera crew or wreck what starts out like that where it's supposed to be news footage but in general these are supposed to not look like professional film crews these are not supposed to be you know people running around with reds and aries it is supposed to have kind of a more grainy aesthetic it's supposed to look a little bit more amateurish the biggest thing that the majority of these have is they have a first person pov that we are aware of the camera person, that someone is talking directly to the camera person. Oftentimes the camera person is talking back like we see in Blair Witch. And that we are understanding that this is an artifice of filmmaking. That whatever the setup is, that this is a group of people who are trying to record some type of footage and that the recording mechanism is somehow included in the plot. Oftentimes the films are presented as quote, discovered material, meaning that after the fact, some people found them. And we see this kind of play out over and over again of oh, these tapes were found in the woods or we raided a serial killer's apartment and these are the tapes that we found or we found these tapes in an abandoned coal mine or wherever. But sometimes we get this idea of the tapes being discovered. Often they go to great lengths to have this kind of fictional creation of realism. How can we make it seem as real as possible? And I'm going to talk more about this in a sec, but it's kind of the idea of having impromptu things, of having people show up and say stuff and things being unprepared and um, things that might not normally happen in kind of a composed um, sense of being on camera that, you know, kind of we lose that composition. We lose the idea of, of the artifice of filmmaking and it just is the reality is left. Um, the idea that, you know, as the horror progresses, we stop paying attention to the camera and the fact that it is very performative and instead we just are left with the horror. Now, a lot of these also function as mockumentaries. And this is kind of, I look to American Vandal on Netflix, which isn't really horror, which definitely is, is kind of posited as a mockumentary, but within horror, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is like this. I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, Man Bites Dog in a few minutes. And so these all have kind of a mockumentary aesthetic where it's a group of people are making a quote, documentary about something, and then the horror comes out of that. The Bay also functions like that. Some of these films also function as surveillance footage, where the cameras are there, and they're just kind of picking up what they're pointed at. And usually the surveillance footage is kind of blended in. So if we look at like paranormal activity, there are times where they talk directly into the camera, where they are recording each other, talking directly to each other. But at the same time, they have cameras up in the corners of the room acting as surveillance. And so we see this kind of surveillance footage come in. And then we also have the idea of fake news, which is wreck in the bay, that they are going in to do this kind of news story or a documentary on one thing, and then shit happens, and then they end up recording whatever type of crazy event is going down. So I mentioned that this is the fictional 
creation of realism. So what are some of the aesthetics that filmmakers use to kind of fictionally convince us or try to convince us that we are seeing something real? Well, the first one and the one that really kind of sets a lot of people um, off that makes them not necessarily like found footage films is the shaky camera, the unstable camera, that it might be smooth at times, but then inevitably someone is going to run with it. Someone is going to walk with it. And this has actually improved over time. I do have to say that when we first started getting into digital filmmaking and we were seeing a lot of um, digital filmmaking on found footage where people were running with cameras, it, it gave me a headache too. It just didn't look right. But we're getting better with it. And so some of the, the future later on um, found footage films that I saw where people were running, like the, the technology had improved. But ultimately, it's kind of exactly what you think of when you think of Blair Witch. The idea that people are running with the camera, that it's kind of blurry at times. We don't necessarily know what we are seeing. And that in general, the whole camera feels unstable. Like at any minute, it could hit the ground. We also see a lot of unplanned moments, which I talked about previously when I was talking about kind of the, the, the qualities that go into these. And within the unplanned moments, it's um, if we think about wreck, how we're just in there, there seems to be an elderly lady and she, she seems to be upset and then all of a sudden she charges the camera or all of a sudden some type of crazy parasite crawls out of this woman's skin, like the bay. Or if we think about the visit, all of a sudden, um, you know, grandma's under the, the house playing hide and seek with them in the creepiest way possible. Another aesthetic is grainy or kind of cell phone footage. The idea that the footage is not crisp, it's not clear, that they kind of degrade it a little bit so that it makes it more believable to us. Or even that it is filmed on a cell phone or a laptop. And we also get first-person intros, like someone comes in and kind of gives details about how the footage was found, or we have somebody standing there going, okay, guys, we're about to go into the woods to research this witch. So we always get kind of intro as to how this footage came to be. And ultimately, that is a device used to kind of push this further. It's just like at the start of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, based on a real story, and then they tacked that in front of every film that came out in the 1970s that they could even remotely tack it on to. And so it's the idea of kind of giving us this intro that convinces us it's real from the get-go. So we do have this kind of how the footage was found, where, you know, we kind of have this either as a lower third or as a placard pop up to say like this footage was found here, 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 or a group of kids went into the woods on this date, or we embed it into the story where a person is talking into the camera and then we kind of always get that unplanned, unassuming like, oh my gosh, are you recording? And here's what we're about to do. So we do get this intro into the story in that way. So then the question becomes, what are the effects of these aesthetics within the viewers? If we now know kind of the devices of found footage, what do these do as a viewer? What do, do you experience watching these certain aesthetics? The biggest one is submergence. These are all meant to kind of submerge you into the story in a completely different way than, say, a fictional tale would. It's meant to make you feel like you're part of it or like you're in some way watching something that you shouldn't be. And it works to a degree as long as you are willing to suspend belief. So with things like Blair Witch, where there was a question of whether or not it was real when Blair Witch came out, the submergence level really, really worked in that regard. By the time we roll around to um, several decades later, some of the future found footage films, things like The Visit, we're not necessarily feeling the submergence in quite the same level as we were with Blair Witch Project. But that said, it still inserts you into the scenario. You still definitely 
definitely side with the protagonist. And it is even more frightening to view it through the lens of this um, adolescent girl than it would be had they actually shot the film in kind of a third person omniscient style. Like it really does add something to the storytelling. Another effect that these films have is they're meant to make you question reality to a certain degree. And by this point, we've been seeing found footage films for decades by now. Most of us do not fall for it. Most of us kind of have this, we know if it's playing in a theater at the mall that it's not going to be real. But that said, we still see these kind of found footage videos pop up online that we do question if they're real or not. I remember a couple of years ago, somebody sent me a video of what I think was supposed to be a gnome walking out of a bush. And it was grainy and it was shaky cam and then something ran at the camera. And right at the front of my brain, I was going, this is fake. I don't know what I'm watching, but this is fake. But as soon as that thing started running at the camera... All of a sudden, my heart started pumping like whatever it was. It definitely had some type of an effect on me. And so even though that we on the surface know that it is not real, when we see stuff on the internet now, we still have that same kind of questioning of reality of could this be real? And this is really kind of what found footage is pushing for as a whole. And even if we do not necessarily buy it in feature film form anymore, we still buy it if we see it on YouTube. Another one of the effects is that it's really pushing to kind of create a closer connection to the main character. With movies like The Visit or Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity, these are all kind of crafted in the way that they are for a number of reasons. But one of the effects of it is that we relate more to the character, that we are drawn into their world, that we understand them a little bit more because we are seeing the world through their lens, through the camera that they're carrying around. We also get a more in-depth understanding of horror. One of my absolute favorite found footage segments of all time is from VHS 2, the segment Safe Haven. This segment scared the crap out of me the first time I saw it because of how it's shot, because the reveals are happening in camera as the characters see stuff, because it's all happening in real time as the characters are experiencing it, because we are submerged into this labyrinth-like environment that they're in, and we are forced to try to find our way out through the lens of the camera just as they are doing. So through this, we get a far more elaborate understanding of horror than we would if this was shot in a third-person omniscient way where we were bouncing around between all these different characters. Because we are forced to see it through the eyes of one person as they are trying to deal with the crazy scenario that's happening, it really elevates it and ups the ante. Found footage can also mask the horror until it's revealed to the character. If we think about something like Cloverfield, the characters know something crazy is going down before we actually see what is causing the demolition through their eyes. The same thing happens in Wreck. We know that something seriously crazy is happening in that building, but it is discovered as the characters discover it. So we're just being fed tiny little breadcrumbs of something going on, and we don't really get a full picture until the character does, and then we relate more to this. So through these first-person perspectives and first-person relations, we are actually able to experience the horror on a completely different level. Which brings me to the question, why make a found footage project? And this is a hard question for a filmmaker because I've definitely been pitched found footage projects before and had people, you know, ask my opinion of them. And the first question that I always bring up is, 
is this story better told as a found footage film? Like telling it as a found footage film, telling it from first person perspective, does that give something to the story that it would not have if we shot it from a third person perspective? And that is always kind of what I look for in found footage films. Like what made Blair Witch special? The story itself, group of kids go into the woods, they find a couple things, and then they find a house. And so the story itself does not have that many beats. It would not really function as well as a third-person perspective. But because we have it in first-person perspective, it's amazing what we get to connect to. The same with paranormal activity. The style and the aesthetic of the found footage really do bring something additional to the project. Then there are ones that I could go kind of either way on. As above, so below. It's a cool found footage film, but I question if it wouldn't be just as good if they had shot it as a third-person omniscient film. But I've argued this with people who feel, no, no, that had to be a found footage film. That's what made it so special. Um, same thing with Cannibal Holocaust. It kind of uses this device, but then again, it is the graininess of the footage that they find that makes it feel real, that makes it feel so much more of a punch. So other times it functions as a gimmick. And this is what we're going to see as I delve a little bit into the history of found footage. We're going to see kind of the gimmick of the filming device coming up in the 1970s after we kind of have a Mondo film, Cannibal Holocaust boom. But then again, after Paranormal Activity and a couple of other giant films, we're going to see this massive glut of found footage films where people were taking regular films and turning them into found footage films just to get that kind of gimmick to ride the wave of Paranormal Activity. And so the last factor that I think um, really kind of defines why sometimes people make found footage films is budgets. You can save money making a found footage film, and this is both good and bad. So when we look at things like Paranormal Activity or um, Blair Witch Project or Unfriended or Blumhouse's film Creep, what these films have in common is that they were all really budget savvy. They were all pretty inexpensive to make, but really did pack this giant film punch. They all had this fantastic aesthetic to them. They all had really good plots and really good um, acts to, you know, kind of see it through. The characters all had arcs. And so, but they were able to save money by being found footage films. And so because of that, Oftentimes, films will go to a found footage aesthetic, will become found footage as a way to save money. And so you will run into some of these. And I think that a lot of times it's these films that, you know, people might kind of see and then go, oh, I don't know if I enjoyed that. But it's by no means all found footage films. But you can save money turning a film into found footage because suddenly you don't have to have the fanciest camera equipment ever. You can have more consumer-grade stuff. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a plot with constant beats happening because a lot of it is going to be kind of as the characters discover it. You can focus far more on character development and seeing everything through the character's eyes than seeing a full picture of the monster in beautiful um, bright lights. And so it does allow you to cut budgets a little bit. And so that would be kind of the, the last reason that I would say that some people make found footage films is because they are oftentimes can be a little cheaper than if you're doing things as a third person omniscient style. So this all got me thinking about the idea of the formula of the found footage film. Is there a set formula? Like with slashers, we can look at it and we can say, okay, well, a group of 
people, teens usually are going to wrong somebody, then they're going to come back, they're going to kill them all one at a time through um, interesting ways, and then we're going to have our final girl. Like, we have a very set formula. We can do the same with kind of the Saw-ish torture films that came out, like what's going to happen in torture porn. They all kind of have a general formula that they follow. So then I started thinking, is there a formula of found footage films? And these, because we do have such a wide variety of subgenres within the found footage area, and it does function more as almost like an aesthetical choice and sometimes a gimmick more than a plot or a subgenre, there's not necessarily a set formula. That said, I definitely was able to tease out something. So we can start off with a justification of the camera. And this is a group of students exploring something, the woods, you know, why we're recording footage of the Paris underground, why we're in the Amazon, or why we're making a documentary where we see this in the visit and paranormal activity and wreck. And then we get some type of clue that something is slightly off just something small. And then we get another clue that something is slightly off. And then there's usually running, running, running. The camera falls in a weird place. The audience catches a glimpse of some type of big scary thing. And then it breaks down from there. But the biggest thing that connects all of these is the justification of the camera that we have to open with some type of justification of the camera. And so then I turned um, to Nightmare on Film Street on their website. They have this wonderful breakdown of the anatomy of great found footage films by Devon Taylor. And the elements that they included that they said um, make great found footage films are authenticity. And this is, again, the idea of justifying the camera, why it's there, um, you know, how this is real and, and how the aesthetic choice makes it authentic. The amplification of the fear, and this is the something slightly off, something more slightly off, and then we kind of go full um, fear. And then it's the idea of the sense of urgency has to be inserted, that something is going to happen. We can't find Todd. We are lost. Um, people are dying that we kind of get this extreme sense of urgency. And then the last two I love, it's the element of purpose and the element of style. It's that these films have to do a little bit more than just present us with a scary element. That in order to be good, there has to be a reason it is being made and they have to do something different than all other found footage films. It can't just be kids running through woods with cameras. We've seen that. It has to give us something a little bit more. It has to bring some type of original style that builds on the found footage films that we've already seen. And so with that, let's talk a little bit about the history of found footage films. Found footage itself kind of goes all the way back to novels. I mean, it's basically just expository storytelling. It's the idea of first-person storytelling, of telling the story from one of the characters' perspective. And we see this in a lot of Lovecraft, like Call of Cthulhu. We see this in Dracula. We see this in um, Pose, The Pit and the Pendulum. Just the idea that the story is coming from one of the characters in it, um, that it's a first-person perspective. But what we think of as found footage films, for me, really kind of starts to build in the 1960s with the French film movement Cinema Verite. And Cinema Verite was all about the real. It was supposed to be unrehearsed dialogue. And ultimately, the biggest element of it was that the filmmakers are always involved in the plot. Um, and sometimes these were as documentaries, things like Grey Gardens, Salesman, Titty Cut Follies. These were all documentaries where in some way the camera person um, had attention drawn to them. They, the characters, not characters, the, the subjects were either talking to them or they were talking to the subjects. We were aware that this was a film and that the filmmakers were involved. 
And then there were also fictionalized narratives of these, like faces, where the character became part of the plot, and we were always being brought, uh, you know, there was attention always being brought to the fact that these people were being filmed. And so this happens in the early 1960s, but around the same time, we're starting to get these things called Mondo films. And these are pseudo-documentaries. Ultimately, um, they were supposed, they were originally kind of inspired by travel logs, these, these films that would like travel the globe and show you what this area looks like. And travel logs go way back, I mean, from Pole to the Equator was a travelogue shot in 1910 um, as, as men traverse the world, oftentimes killing things as they went. They definitely were kind of, you know, hunters at the same time. Um, but so we've had these travelogues going on for a long time. In 1962, Mondo Kane comes out. And Mondo Kane is, it's supposed to function as one of these travel logs, but it is wild stuff. It is supposed to show these heavily kind of shocking and exploitive topics from all over the globe, and it's supposed to be real footage. After the success of Mondo Kane, we start seeing more and more of these Mondo films. And so from 1962 through the 1970s, we see these ones that really kind of become highly exploitive. We've got Mondo Trasho, Mondo Topless, Mondo Keyhole, Mondo New York. And each one of these films will kind of present a topic. And within it, they will have some real footage and then some faked footage. And so what this eventually kind of emerges into is what we remember from the 80s as Faces of Death, the whole Faces of Death series, where we were getting some real abhorrent stuff from around the globe. And then we were also getting this highly fake footage mixed in, but it was shot as if it was real. It was made to look like real news footage or real camcorder footage. So we've got these Mondo films brewing right around the same time that we have Cinema Verite come about in the 1960s. So across the board throughout the 60s, everyone was kind of submerged in this idea of the real. How do we make films more real? And they definitely, horror filmmakers keep playing around with this all the way through the 70s, not just within Mondo films, but even looking at kind of the aesthetic and how films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes shifted over to this real grainy aesthetic that even though that they were shot as fictional third-person omniscient films, they still look like real news footage. Texas Chainsaw Massacre has this shakiness to it. Last House on the Left, Wes Craven intentionally shot to make it look like it was real news footage. And so even though that these films function as fictional films, we're still playing around with this idea of the real. What I consider to be the contemporary found footage films comes about in 1980 with Cannibal Holocaust. The setup of Cannibal Holocaust is that a whole bunch of people went into the woods, um, into the jungle to investigate all of these cannibals and never returned. And now we have found the tapes. We have brought them back to New York City. And now we are going to watch the tapes. And then for the rest of the movie, we are just watching the tapes. And even though it's presented as narrative, they are still made to look like someone is filming it. It still very much looks like ethnographic footage. It's shockumentary infused. It was meant to just scare the crap out of you and disgust you and revolt you all at the same time. But Cannibal Holocaust is kind of the product of those Mondo films and that cinema verite aesthetic. The idea of recording the shocking stuff from around the globe and making it look as real as possible. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. We still see a couple of kind of knockoff cannibal found footage movies come out. We have a couple other small found footage movies come out between 1980s and 1990s. But the next one that I consider to be really groundbreaking comes in 1992 with Ghost Watch. 
Ghostwatch was a show um, that was showed on uh, the BBC, and it was made to look real. This was kind of like War of the Worlds for TV. And it was supposed to be about um, a news show about a group of investigators who were going in to investigate this poltergeist at this kind of suburban house. And they were investigating a poltergeist that they called Pipes because he would often bang on the pipes because it was presented as real and because of the reality aesthetic that they applied to it no one really knew if it was real or not and so it blew up the switchboards and it became a massive phenomenon i didn't see this until much much later but it still packs an amazing punch along with it um where they really go to great lengths to kind of push it as news footage and when crazy things start happening with the ghosts you know how how the news anchors respond and how the people there respond it really is so well orchestrated Ghostwatch is currently streaming on shutter so i highly recommend checking it out so that was 1992 1999 we have the blair witch project directed by daniel merrick and eduardo sanchez and this i think is what most people think of as found footage this or paranormal activity these were two that definitely kind of kick-started waves of found footage knockoffs the budget of Blair Witch Project was only $60,000, and through amazing filmmaking and really, really smart marketing, they were able to make so much money off of this. Even though it was set in, even though that they released it in 1909, the footage was supposedly from 1994. And it was about this group of filmmakers who were making a documentary about a witch and then disappeared. And now we have found the footage. And that's actually on the poster that these filmmakers had been lost. And now we have found the footage. The marketing behind Blair Witch Project was absolutely amazing. I remember being at college and seeing these posters around campus, not for a movie, but they looked more like looking for posters, like missing posters. And so we kind of had this idea that something was going on. Now, remember that we had the internet at this point, but it was not quite as prevalent in our lives to the point where any story can be debunked in a matter of seconds. And so there was definitely this air of, could it be real? And for some reason, we were all willing to suspend belief briefly that it could be real and was playing at the mall near you. But that said, there was this kind of air of could it be real? But it was the success of the Blair Witch Project that led me as a film student at the time to try to seek out other found footage films, which led me to 1993's Man Bites Dog. This is a Belgium dark horror comedy. And when I say dark, I mean this thing, it's just bleak and morbid and disturbing. And I do not recommend Man Bites Dog to the horror novice. This is for people who are wanting to be tested and are ready for some seriously, seriously heinous shit. Man Bites Dog functions as a documentary about a serial killer. A group of filmmakers go in and they start documenting the serial killer trying to get in his psyche. It's much more of a psychological exploration. But as the movie goes along, they start becoming almost complacent with the crimes. And then after a while, but as the movie goes along, they start almost kind of understanding his psyche. And then they start almost participating in the crimes. And then it keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and just completely spins out of control. It is brutal. It is gory. It has excessive violence. There's children being killed in it. And so I do not recommend this um, for, for 
you know, kind of horror light folks. But if you are looking for something to really push yourself, Man Bites Dog is definitely a powerful film. This was trimmed from an NC-17 rating to get into Blockbuster. And so I'm not sure which version of it is currently available in the States. But I will say that as a film student in the late 1990s, I'm sure that the one that I watched was whatever had been trimmed to get into Blockbuster. And I remember it being just as fucking horrifying. So um, I recommend this in any format that you can get it in if you are a person who really likes shocking stuff. The found footage angle of it is so well done. This is one of those movies that would not function well if it was not done as a found footage. And the the aesthetic of the found footage makes it far more terrifying than if it had been a regular film. So let's fast forward a little bit, a couple of years, and we have Paranormal Activity in 2007. Paranormal Activity was the dream of Oren Pele. After some of other notables in Hollywood, including Jason Bum and Steven Spielberg, started getting involved, it did a ton of reshoots and got cobbled together in the current version that it was released in. Um, Blumhouse Productions and Paramount came in, but ultimately what this film relied on was the idea of simplicity, that it was this surveillance footage, and it was made for a budget of just $15,000. They attached an amazing marketing campaign to it. And what was so smart about this marketing campaign is that you did not see much of the actual film. Instead, what you saw was the audience reacting to the film. And that was brilliant because that just tantalized audiences even more thinking if that person is screaming their head off, I want to be screaming my head off too. And I have to see what they are screaming their head off at. Paranormal Activity bursts into a massive franchise and goes on for several films. In addition to that, it is thought to have kickstarted an entire trend of found footage movies. And I will say that I definitely think that Paranormal Activity had a lot to do with it. But at the same time, we had a lot of found footage films already in the works in 2007. We saw Wreck. The Poughkeepsie Tapes, and Alone With Her. And then shortly thereafter, in 2008, we had Cloverfield, Diary of the Dead, Home Movie, and Quarantine, which is the American remake of Wreck. Now, a lot of these films were in production at the same time of Paranormal Activity. And I will say that Paranormal Activity's massive success definitely lended itself to the explosion of found footage films in the late 2000s. But I also think there was a little bit more to it. Because so many of these films were in production or post-production around the same time, I think that it's probably a little bit more than just kind of a monkey see, monkey do scenario. With that, I think that there's a couple of different things that were going on kind of universally. At this time, we suddenly have an increase of camera phones and consumer-grade cameras. So we now have this easy accessibility of recording stuff. By this time, most of us have some type of smartphone and we are all used to kind of whipping it out to take pictures. And then suddenly we get the um, the ability to record video at the same time and we realize that we can record entire segments on our phones. So we also see this increase of the DSLR camera that we can all just go to Target and buy a camera that potentially could create some type of high quality film all at the same time. So suddenly we have this easy accessibility of filmmaking tools. And we also have this easy accessibility of editing software where it becomes, you know, something that you could potentially do on your phone and that most people could do on their laptops. 
We also have an increase of internet videos around this time period. This is where YouTube is really starting to take off. And we're starting to see a lot of videos getting shared on social networks as well. And so what we have here is kind of this perfect storm where everyone suddenly has access to cameras. Everyone suddenly has access to basic filmmaking tools. Everyone is sharing videos already. And then paranormal activity happens. And then everyone goes, oh, shit, I can do that. Or in some instances, people were already in the process of doing that because we all kind of had that same like, this is where we're headed. We can all record videos all the time now. And so the late 2000s are largely thought of as a glut of found footage films. It was by far the predominant trend. So much so that we even see a TV show come out, which I enjoyed. I do have to say, in 2011, we had The River. And this was, again, Oren Palais and Blumhouse. It ran on ABC, only ran for eight episodes. Um, it was kind of, it much like found footage, it was kind of either people loved it or they hated it. Um, but I thought the setup was very cool about a, a family that was going into um, a jungle on this cruise to try to find their lost father. And it had some interesting setups. Um, by the 2010s, early 2010s, we're really starting to see a lot of people playing around with found footage. We have the VHS anthology, which plays around with the idea of these being found tapes, and they're all kind of different setups and different plot lines, but we're still seeing this idea of it being found, um, that someone was making this for something and then the tape was lost and later found. In 2014, we have As Above, So Below. This is one of our massive budget found footage films created by Legendary and Universal. Um, the Dowdo brothers wrote and directed it. And ultimately, the, the story is um, a group of people looking for the, um, the Philosopher's Stone. They're looking for this kind of alchemist stone. And they actually shot it in the catacombs below Paris. Um, this movie uh, critically didn't do as well, but um, box office-wise, it performed quite well. And I do have to say, this is definitely a favorite of a lot of my college students. And so I think that it did hit with fans pretty well. And this one does feel more elaborate and kind of of a bigger budget than a lot of other found footage films. The, they're traversing this crazy environment. There's all of these different creatures and all of these different horrors that they encounter. And so this one does feel a lot like um, a found footage film, but with a lot more uh, resources put behind it. But at the same time, I don't think that it's budget that is what makes found footage films good. One of my absolute favorites from around this time um, was Taking of Deborah Logan from 2014, which is a much, much, much smaller budget directed by Adam Robitel, and it was just a smart setup about a documentary crew who was supposed to be documenting this woman who um, they think has Alzheimer's, and they're talking with her family and kind of documenting um, her, her as her mind starts degrading a little bit, and she starts succumbing to Alzheimer's, but you get slightly creepy stuff, slight things that are slightly off, and you begin to question if she has Alzheimer's, if she may have something else. This one was made for a much smaller budget, but it is such smart filmmaking. Um, it really exploded on uh, Netflix a couple of years after its initial release. And um, I still consider it to be one of the best found footage films ever made. And then in 2015, we had The Visit. This is M. Night Shyamalan doing a found footage film with Blumhouse and Universal. And I really loved The Visit. And one of the things that fascinated me most about it was that it had such 
uh, it barely used a score. It had practically no score. And this is a whole additional topic, the idea of if you are making a found footage film, do you put a score behind it? And many of them still do because it still builds tension. If you think like, you know, how tension is created in horror, a lot of times it's the score. It's when the strings kick in or when the drums kick in or when we start feeling the, the tempo of the music elevate and things like that. The visit does not rely on any of that. It really just kind of lives in the silence and lets us live in the silence. And I thought it was so effective and has some serious scares to it. So this was definitely one of my favorite found footage films. And now what we are seeing is I kind of close out the history of this and, and the lecture on found footage films. What we're now seeing is what I will call found footage tech horrors. And we saw Unfriended come out in 2015 and the sequel um, Searching came out in 2018. And there's been a couple other ones like this, like The Den, um, where they are these kind of tech found footage movies where the entire thing will take place on a laptop or on um, Skype or on a social networking platform. When I first heard about Unfriended, I was so skeptical of it and I ended up absolutely loving it. And so um, even searching 2018, which I'll say is more of a thriller than it is a horror film, but I was still so fascinated by how smart the filmmaking was and how they were able to carry an entire plot just on computer. I'm not sure if this will become a, a really kind of common trend. I'm questioning if this is kind of a gimmick um, that we're seeing now and if it won't kind of peter out. But then again, we all have become so engrossed in our computers and the bulk of our lives are now done, you know, executed online. Everything from banking to talking to family members to talking to friends to homework, just everything. And so I, I have a feeling that we are going to see some more of these. And as we do see more of them, I will watch them because I'm excited to see how people kind of play with this, how they include elements of our lives, how we can see, you know, kind of the things that we do day to day online exploited in a scary way. Plus, it plays with the fact that we are all still kind of nervous about the Internet to a particular degree, even though that we live our entire lives online for much of for much of the population we most of us still kind of have this idea of are we being watched is someone watching us could we be hacked could someone steal my identity there's still this certain paranoia that goes along with it so i think we are going to continue seeing these kind of tech found footage horrors which i will talk more about when i discuss technology horror later on in this season so i wanted to close out the discussion on found footage horror by recommending a couple of found footage films that i thought did not get as much attention as they deserved so we'll Call these kind of my found footage deep cuts and ones that I highly recommend that you guys check out and, and hunt down. So I'm going to start with 2010, Lake Mungo. Lake Mungo was released as part of the After Dark Horror Fest back in 2010. And it did reasonably well as part of the festival, but then it kind of fell asleep. And it is just an amazing found footage film. Um, I, I call it a breadcrumb film in that every single time you watch it, you will notice something different, that the filmmakers are kind of leaving you little clues all throughout this film. And every single time you watch it, you're going to get a different understanding and under and find something different in there. Um, it's just this amazing film where as you're watching it, you don't really understand what you're watching. But then by the end, you realize that all these things that you have been seeing mean something. And so Lake Mungo is just absolutely amazing and has one of the best jump scares I have ever seen in a found footage film. 
Next up is Troll Hunter from 2010. I love this one because it's nothing I had ever seen before. It still has a very similar setup of a group of kids going into this kind of forbidden area to look for monsters, which we've seen in a couple of different films. But this one really has amazing effects. It's got amazing plot. And it really has some just fantastic ambience to it. It's just got these amazing atmospheric moments that go along with it. So Troll Hunter from 2010. Next up is The Bay from 2012. This is a Blumhouse film that just did not get a lot of attention, and I really thought that it deserved more. About um, a group of people making kind of a documentary, or it may have been kind of a television broadcast, about this um, celebration that this town was doing. And as they are having this celebration, and it's on this, um, this bay, all of a sudden, people start coming down with these weird skin infections, and they start bleeding from their nostrils. And it becomes um, an infection film, a parasitic infection film, but shot as found footage. Has some amazingly creepy moments. Um, even though that the found footage is kind of um, taxing at the start of the film, within about 10 minutes, you become preoccupied with the infection, kind of the outbreak moments of it. And that is just absolutely amazing in the found footage aesthetic and carries you through the rest of the movie. In 2014, we have The Possession of Michael King. This is another super, super tiny, small film, but one that I was just fascinated with and had a really good time watching. It's about a man whose wife has just passed away from cancer, and he becomes obsessed with trying to find out if there is anything in the afterlife, if anything happens after death. And so he decides to try all of these different tactics to communicate with the dead, um, from necromancy to uh, scrying to doing these kind of weird occult incantations to see if there's anything that he can do um, to contact the dead anything after we die and he decides to document the entire thing and after one of his um, experiments you get the idea that something has come back with him that something has worked but he starts changing and the whole thing is shot through his eyes as he's kind of documenting this process of trying to communicate with the dead. And it's got just some amazingly creepy moments and just some really compelling horror to it as well. Next up is Hell House LLC. This one was recommended to me at Phoenix Comic Con a couple of years ago um, by a group of horror fans when I had talked on one of the panels about how I'm always looking for weird Stuff that maybe I have not seen before. I'm always looking for obscure horror. Somebody said, oh my God, you have to watch Hell House LLC. And again, I was kind of like, I don't know, it's found footage, roll my eyes a little bit. But again, was proven wrong because this movie is fucking brilliant. Um, I admit I have not seen the sequels. There are a couple, but this first one is just this perfectly crafted small film um, about a group of people who decide to buy what is supposedly a real haunted house to turn it into a haunted attraction. And it documents the process of them kind of converting it into a haunted attraction and then what happens as they go to open. And it's just so well done and such a small film, but they make it smartly so that you don't necessarily notice what a small budget they likely had. It's just really intelligent filmmaking. And then the last one that I will give you that you should definitely see is Inside Number Nine's live Halloween show. Inside Number Nine is a British TV show which definitely has not gotten the acclaim that it should here in the States. It is just absolutely fantastic across the board. But I particularly love their live Halloween show because the whole thing is set up as if they are going to do a live Halloween special and then things start happening. And the show pushes the found footage and kind of the reality aesthetic of seeing behind the scenes of a television show 
to such a degree that it is impressive. They really play around with the fact of what happens when a television show glitches, when a live television show has something happen that it's not supposed to. How does it play out? And it feels real and it feels believable and you know you are watching an artifice, but it feels so cleverly done that it just pushes you forward. And I believe that is streaming on Netflix right now and you should just watch the whole Inside Number 9, um, seasons one, two, and three, and possibly four. I think there's a fourth one now while you're there because they're all fantastic. And with that, I encourage you guys to revisit found footage. Revisit Wreck. It is still one of the scariest movies I have ever seen. Now, I will warn you in advance. When I taught this in my class this semester, I gave my students the choice of picking what movie we would watch afterwards. And my students, after I kind of gave them the rundown of a couple of different found footage films, they voted for Wreck. And so we started watching Wreck in class. And what we quickly discovered is that the Wreck that is available on Amazon, Vudu, um, Roku, iTunes, any of the places, uh, uh, YouTube, any of the places that you would regularly go to rent a movie online, they are all screening the American dubbed version, which is definitely not my first choice to show. I would never show a dubbed version willingly had I not already paid five bucks and my students voted for it. Um, so be warned of that. In this case, I am all about some physical media because you can get it in the original language that it's intended to be shown in. So, but at the end of the day, I recommend revisiting one. Pick a found footage film of your choice and revisit. And I encourage you to think about the idea of creating an artificial reality of what we've come to know as what kind of alerts us that footage is real versus unreal and how this is being used within the film. Thank you so much and have a good night. Superstar man, you think you know it all? Well, you don't know nothing, punk. Talking that same cadaver jump. Let me show you what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original, produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta. Executive Producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr. Associate Producer Jessica Safa-Vemer. Art and Design by Ashley Detmering. Sound Recording Design and Mixing by David McKendry. Music by The Serpentines. For Fangoria, Brandon Wynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.